This is CliffCentral.com. Hello there, it's Michael Kahn here on the Futurology Show. And in studio, I've got uh, Big Boy Brett. How are you, Brett? Boom. How's it, bud? How are you doing, man? Very well, very well. But I'm excited today because uh, today we've got a, a special guest. Uh, How excited are you, Mike? I, I really am, actually. Because You I, do look excited. I'm loving your shirt, by the way. Uh, you, you are. Becoming classics. And becoming classic. It yeah. actually says for our guests, I'm not getting older. I'm just becoming a wet old fart. No, thank you. Becoming a classic. But anyway, <laughs> sorry about this, but... Uh, <laughs> Professor Steve Keane is our guest today. Are you there, Professor? Can you hear us loud and clear? Yes, I can. I hope you can hear me well. I'll change over to the microphone here to hopefully improve the sound. No, fantastic. You're coming through loud and clear. And I, uh, I've got Brett Sinclair in the studio with me, who's an ex-Googler, and, and he, he, he's the clown of the show. But uh, Hello, Professor. How are you doing? Very well. Uh, we're really excited to uh, speak with you today. I have to admit, Mike has been going on about this session for, I'd like to say, days, if not weeks, possibly months. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I'm excited because, uh, you know, maybe just a bit of background. Um, you, you've just written the book. Uh, can, can you know the next financial crisis is a coming? Um, you predicted the 2008 crisis. One of the few main, uh, well, not main, but one of the few economists who actually got it right. Mm. Um, Professor, before we dive in, do you want to just give us a, a background to who you are and and where you're currently uh, working from? And and because you're an academic. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm for the next year. Actually, I'm currently at the uh, University of Kingston in London. Yeah. I've been here for three years. Before that, I was in Australia at the University of Western Sydney. And uh, I've been trying to establish a heterodox education and non-mainstream economics because I, I find uh, universities, particularly the top universities, Cambridge's and Oxford's of the world, are promoting the existing paradigm when it's manifestly false. So I'm trying to uh, develop alternatives. And in that basis, I'm going to be going out and ceasing being in the university sector as of July or August of next year and going out and being crowdfunded on Patreon instead, yeah. simply mm-hmm. because universities have been made an impossible place to do non, uh, non-mainstream non work of, of any description, whichever uh, discipline you talk about. Uh, everything is designed to reward the existing paradigm uh, mm. because bureaucrats are trying to control research and they haven't got a clue. Absolutely. We call it academic ignorance on our side here. Um, mm. and, and, I, and I quite agree because I've actually got an economics major and, and I hate to say it, but I know nothing about economics because it's exactly this. <laughs> you know, we, we, we operated in a world of perfect competition. Mike, um, can, can I add that to a list of things, Mike? You, you can, Brett. <laughs> you really can. Um, but, but Professor, you, you wrote the book, um, predicting the, the next, uh, financial mm. crash. Um, you know, uh, sorry, I actually completely fluffed that up. Uh, <laughs> Can we avoid another financial crisis? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, you, you wrote the book. Uh, how well has that been received? It's gone down very well in the UK because I'm extremely well known over here. So yeah. it, it tends to bounce around a between uh, 2,000th and 5,000th in Amazon's uh, bestseller list, sure. occasionally topping economics and macro. Um but in terms of getting the American exposure in the American market, I, I haven't had the chance to promote it as much as I was able to do with debunking economics. So it hasn't okay. had as much of an impact as I would have liked over there. But uh, those, who, those who read it, I mean, it was, it, it was an excellent um, project to be given by the publishers because they had a target of a, 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 a series of, of questions on capitalism, hence the overall fact that it has a, a question mark in the title, yeah. and a, a limit of no more than 25,000 words. And it's extremely strong discipline to write to that 
short length and still cover a topic well. So I quite enjoyed the challenge. Well, well I must congratulate you because I, I, I found it an exceptionally well-written book and, and uh, I've actually read through it three times because I, I – no, no, you, you, you know, the argument you, you lay out is a very logical argument. Um, and, and when you look at the data, it, it's kind of obvious, where, where, you know, and you've written the book in a very simple, easy to read, uh, easy to understand way. And, and for non-economic, um, discipline, it, it, it was with people. It, it's a very easy book to read. So I must congratulate you. It's, I, it's, it's the best book I've read on economics. I mean, just before we go too far with it, I'd like if you can give us a summary <laughs> for our guests, right? Because I'd really like our guests to kind of get a clear understanding of what you're trying to address in the book. Yeah. I okay. Mean, love well, to the, see the them basic, buy it. <laughs> right. The basic summary is quite mm. simple, and that is that banks create money by lending. Um, yeah. So rather than you, rather than the bank being a warehouse that uh, takes in some money from somebody else and lends it out to you, and therefore the money of the it's lent of your money to somebody else. I mean, they can spend more, but you can spend less, and therefore there's no real impact from the from the banking sector yeah. on the real economy. That's mainstream thinking. Mm. In reality, banks are not warehouses; they're factories. They make money uh, when they create it. Uh, they create that they create money at the same time. You then spend that borrowed money. So the change in private debt is a major factor in demand. Yeah. And the larger that get, the larger the level of debt gets to be compared to GDP the more swings and roundabouts in the creation of credit cause booms and slumps in the economy. Mm. And that's what caused the financial crisis back in 2008. And we're now living in the aftermath of that with, as it happens, the highest level of, pri- of, of private sector debt in the history of capitalism. Yeah, sure. uh, absolutely. And the, the, the origination of this thinking comes from Herman Minsky. Um, yeah. do, do you want to just give us a background to who Herman Minsky was and, and the impact that he's had? Because he hasn't had the impact he should have had. No, I mean, Hyman was well and truly an outsider. And, uh, I mean, his parents were, he were refugees from Russia. Yeah. Uh, after the Bolshevik Revolution. But they were Menshevik rebel, uh, rebels. They weren't right-wingers trying to get away. They were left-wingers who opposed what the what the uh, Bolsheviks were attempting to do, to go to, directly from so, from feudalism to capitalism. It's a socialism, pardon me, by, by, by jumping over capitalism in the meantime. And the Mensheviks, which were, which were actually um, Hyman Minsky's parents who met in Chicago, uh, separate refugees from Menshevik Russia, um, they... They believed that you had to go through a capitalist phase first of all. Now that made me think about Minsky being raised, that the family environment which he's raised, Marx and and a a critique of capitalism is part of it, but it's anti the Soviet Union. It's anti the belief you can jump over the capitalist phase completely, which of course history proved the Mensheviks to be correct on that particular argument. So he starts off non-orthodox, does a degree in mathematics, uh, after fighting in the Second World War. So he's, he's got his hands dirty. He's not like Donald Trump who had a, a, a and couldn't go fight in Vietnam, you know. He actually went and fought in the Second World War. Uh, got a, got, I think he got his, his degree in mathematics after he came back from that, which is part of the whole yeah. um, Eisenhower, Slope, Roosevelt attempt to reintegrate uh, war veterans after the war. And then he did his PhD under Joseph Schumpeter. And mm. Schumpeter was the classic person who believed that capitalism was inherently unstable, but that instability is creative instability. So yes. this is the very various background of Minsky. And what, what because he'd also been raised during, was, I think he was born in 1919 or thereabouts. His parents uh, were, were were refugees after 18 after 1917 from from Russia. Um, so he was born sort of 1919, 1920 that period. So he was a teenager during the Great Depression. And okay. the question that interests him 
as it, when you became an academic economist, is can it happen again? Yeah. And that's literally a quote. And he said, if it, if it can happen, why hasn't it happened between 1945 and when he was writing, which at that stage was the, the uh, 1970s and 80s? And he said that there must be something about the institutions and, and the arrangements that occurred in the post-war period that made it very different to the crisis because – we had gone to the, when he was writing this particular paper. Can it happen again? It was 1982, and he said we've gone 30 years without a serious financial crisis, and that is unheard of in the history of capitalism. Yeah. Uh, but of course, now, of course, uh, he, he gave an explanation as how we get into a situation of crisis, and of course, we are now in that situation of crisis. Yeah, absolutely. And and his famous quote comes from was stability creates the instability. Um, do do you want to take us through? The understanding of that and how, how we, we've wound up at this point in terms of being at a crisis and, and what are the underlying factors of that crisis? Because there are a couple of very clear things from a macroeconomics perspective and you go into a lot of detail around macroeconomics and the fact that we cannot mirror, um, microeconomics. I mean, it's as simple as saying we can understand the body of the ocean from a single drop of water. We can't. It doesn't work. Yeah. Like well, a drop of water you can, a single H2O molecule you can't. And this, this is, economics is caught up with a whole range of myths. And, yeah. uh, and one of the, one of the foundation myths is that microeconomics determines macro. And if you can explain what an individual consumer does, an individual firm, both in, visualized as isolated from the market. Um, uh, and you can then extrapolate that to the market level. Mathematically, you can't. And this yeah. is actually, mm bad mathematics to believe that you can so uh like if you, that's why i say in the, in the book if you if you know the property of a single molecule of h2o you cannot understand what what a, two molecules will do together which is form water yes. under some circumstances ice under others snow under the other other circumstances that depends on the interaction between those identical molecules well even more so for human society what actually gives its character and it's both its its potential and its for both good and bad, the interactions between the entities and microeconomics leaves that out completely. Totally. I have a very interesting point because of the complexity that lies around those different circumstances. As mm. we enter this world of machine learning and artificial intelligence, surely that makes it easier for society to be able to crunch down those opportunities and build the mathematics in. No, well, yeah. I'm making a vast assumption. <laughs> You're making a vast assumption. I, I think if we have algorithms fighting algorithms, we're going to get more instability <laughs> yeah. out of that. Yeah. Uh, but like the basic point from Minsky's logic was to say that uh, that there was a relationship between private debt and economic activity. Yeah. Now that puts him right outside the mainstream straight away because a major thing they've done in mainstream thinking is hermetically seal finance from economics. So yeah. macroeconomic models uh, by central banks around the world and treasuries and mainstream economists had no role for banks or debt or money in them. And Minsky is saying, well, that's where you've got to start with a role for debt. And what he said was, uh, if you situate yourself in historical time, then there's been some form of debt-induced crisis in the recent past, which means everybody is conservative about the amount of debt they'll take on. But because the economy has recovered, most of the projects that are debt financed succeed. And people then think, oh, if we were more levered, we would have made more money. So a period of stable economic growth leads to rising yeah. expectations, and mm -hmm. that's where the idea of stability being destabilizing comes from. Absolutely. Uh, and and if, if we look at the underlying idea of, of innovation, because Minsky looked at, at, at his model and said, let's look at the strength of, of the capitalist economy. And, and that's really the idea of growth, um, and, and, and innovation, um, that drives that. But, but that in itself has become its greatest weakness. 
Yeah, this is one yeah. of the one of the things that I found appealing about Minsk because I, I, when I became a critic of mainstream economics, I was in my well, actually at the end of my first year at university back in 1971, and I started reading outside the textbooks and reading the literature. And of course, you read a lot of Marx's stuff and yeah. a lot of Austrian stuff and so on. And what I found was that I, none of the either pay-ins to capitalism from the Austrians or predictions of doom from the Marxists made any sense to me. They didn't be simply describing the system I was observing until I read Minsky. And the point about Minsky was that he said that the the fundamental instability in capitalism is upwards. The tendency to take yes. turn doing doing well into a speculative boom is the fundamental instability and weakness of capitalism, but it's also a strength. And this, yeah. this is the intriguing thing. It's he's, he rather than saying uh, capitalism has this weakness that Marxists would focus upon and so on, uh, or this strength which Austrians focus upon and see no potential for conflict, he was saying here's a strength which can lead to breakdown. Absolutely, and and from that strength, because you know I was reading through one of the chapters in in, in your book, and I, I sat down and, and drew it out on, on on a piece of paper because it's really a boom and a bust. We get excited mm-hmm. about the growth as entrepreneurs, as capitalists. Um, from that, we we invest more money into into our respective projects because it's exponential, essentially. It, right? it, not not yet, mm-hmm. not not yet. But but yeah. we we get the idea of growth and the opportunity for us to make a profit. We go and borrow more money, which yeah. increases the leverage within the economy, but it also drives up the wages because you make a, a critical point around the distribution of income and the mm. role that, that inequality has in, in, in society. And it's an outcome of this growth because it's always the workers that, that come off short, even if they're not the ones that are leveraging the debt. I can see where you're going. Yeah. Now, yeah. You can and this, see this is the intriguing. Marx even got this right back when he yeah. – um, first built a verbal version of the model that became the the basis of the mathematical modeling that I did um, on where cycles come from. And Marx argued, this is a quote from Capital, to put it mathematically, uh, the level of investment is the independent, not the dependent variable. The level of wages is dependent, not the independent variable. In other words, investment determines what wages are going to be. Yes. And I added to the existence of debt to that. So what you have is when the when a boom goes on, the boom will start because the rate of profit is such that capitalists are willing to invest all their earning in, in, in profits. Therefore, they borrow money to finance that extra investment. And by doing that, they both drive up economic activity and they drive up the amount of money they're paying to bankers. Yeah. But they also eventually enable workers because of employment falling. Workers have a higher capacity to demand wage rises. As that starts to happen, the amount of money that capitalists are making at the peak of the boom is less than they expect because they're paying more out to workers and also, of course, more out to bankers. And then the slump begins at that particular point. So that distribution of income factor is vital. And what it means is the boom will restart again when capitalists get back to the same rate of profit that led them to be willing to invest more than they earn and they start borrowing from banks once more but in that particular situation you know when the next boom along there's more going to bankers and therefore less going to workers yeah. so the real beneficiaries of this level of the, ri- uh, the rising level of debt uh, are not the capitalists it's the bankers again yeah. and the workers who lose it's always you know, the bankers. I'm so, I'm so glad I'm out of banking. I, I feel like I have this dirty cloth on me. <laughs> you do. I don't want to be associated. You, 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 right. you, the studio is smelling quite bad. Actually, it's, it's starting to become a bit more rosier. But, but the bank, the bank always wins, yeah. which is the problem. And it's the origina- you, mm. you coined the term the origination of debt, which I absolutely love. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Banker, because we talk about, we talk about banks as warehouses, which is wrong. And what I said instead, rather than having with the term with my non-orthodox people understand banking, we used to call it endogenous money. That means nothing to anybody no. unless you're inside the industry. So what I say is, it's bank-originated money and debt, otherwise known as bombed. Yeah, 
And, and of course, our economies have been bombed well and truly. Um, Steve, can we just talk about the current scenario? Because the, the crisis is coming, and, and the short answer to, to your book is, yes, it's coming, and we cannot avoid it. Um, can, can we just talk quickly about um, the zombie uh, countries that are coming through based on, on the three criteria of unemployment, the percentage of, of debt to G- GDP over a period of five years, as well as the private debt to GDP? Because you've got a very, mm. very interesting outline. South Africa, yeah. We, we know yeah. we're not, we, Look, we're not, well, we actually, we're not talking about South Africa. I'm no, actually no. looking at your data right now because if you, I have a website, profstevekeen.com, yeah. mm. and under that, one of the headings is uh, crisis question mark, which is, of course, supporting the book, and you'll find data there. And then if you go down, you'll find you can click on a table that takes you to the data for particular countries. And on that basis, South yes. Africa is one of the few countries which is neither a, a walking debt of debt where they've had a crisis back in 2008 and have far too much uh, overhang of debt and not very much credit growth. Uh, those are what I call the walking debt of debt. The zombies to be are ones who managed to borrow their way through the crisis yeah. and now have a much higher level of debt and are going to have a crunch. South Africa is one of the few countries that's in neither of the above. You're, you're one of the humans on that sense because <laughs> your level of, your level of private debt peaked just after the financial crisis at about 80% of GDP, mm. fell a bit. It's now about 70, 75% of GDP. That's half my trigger level. Yes. So you're not you're not going to be zombified, but you might find your exports decline because uh, some of your major export destinations are going to be zombified. Be zombified yeah, right, and, right. and in fact, if I, if I did the numbers, I, th- I think it's about sixty percent of or sixty three percent of of global GDP will be zombified. Between no, the- no, it's more. It's about one third. Uh, that's is- the leftovers. Oh, okay. This country, like China, China is about. Uh, one one half yes. the size of the American economy. The American economy is about one third of the global economy. So you're talking one sixth to one third, okay. not not two thirds. Okay, but it will have a, a a big impact on on us because we we are dependent. J- just in terms of South Africa, and, and one of the questions because I think we, we're an interesting country in that we we have a first world and we have a third world. Um, mm. uh, 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 interest rates, right? Yeah, let's thinking. not let's not even get to the interest rates okay. yet. We'll come back. Um, if we look at our Gini coefficient, I mean, we, we we're sitting at extreme poverty with massive uh, uh, unemployment. I think our official stats are about twenty seven point four percent. Yet I, th- I think if we look at our youth, we're sitting at about a sixty percent youth unemployment, which Ouch. is it's 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 a crisis. Uh, I mean, Steve, I think mm. we're we're probably in a worse state because I, th- I think if we look at the economic uh, the, the unemployment numbers. That's where our, our, our problem sits, not not in the debt numbers. But I do also think, uh, and and I've got no data to back this up. If I look at what is technically our first world, I I, I can't imagine our level of debt is 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 as as comfortable as the eighty percent, seventy five percent. Certainly in terms of the first world economy in South Africa, um, we we're probably not far off your your benchmarks because I mean certainly when I speak to my friends and I speak to my wife, she tells me how expensive it is becoming. You know, our ability to stretch our money is is becoming less and less and less. So, uh, I think we're sitting in a very interesting scenario, but we don't have any data to to really qualify and, and dig into it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, looking at look, I'm looking at the data right now, which the Bank of International Settlements publishes, and they show a corporate debt level uh, in 2008 of about 45% of GDP and a household debt of about 35%. Okay. Now you go fa- fast forward, corporate debt's down to about 35%. Household debt up to about 38%. So you've had a slight decline in your okay. level of private debt. I think more what's happening, you have massive inequality in your country for obvious historical reasons. And with that massive inequality, you don't have the mass market yeah. uh, that existed in less unequal societies like even America. 
and, and consequently you don't have much investment and you're basically dependent upon uh, external demand. And if that's not sufficient, then not much investment happens and you, you remain basically stagnated. Totally. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. Because it's a crisis and, and it has been a crisis for, um, for literally forever. It's, it's, it's a massive issue and, mm-hmm. and I, we don't actually know how to solve it. But can, can we just talk around this idea of inequality? Because there's so many great projects and initiatives, but reading through the economic model, it almost seems we're not going to solve the inequality problem until we solve the economic model. Am I correct? Yeah, I mean, that? That, that's fundamental because we, I mean, I've got a, a range of work that's not actually covered in that book uh, about where inequality comes from and where wealth comes from. And fundamentally, what we've had with economic theory, both left-wing and right-wing theory, have ignored the role of energy yes, um, yeah. in seeing how we actually produce output. And re- in reality, what actually what actually GDP is useful work, and useful work is turning available energy into products. Engineers have dramatically improved our capability to do that over, over time. Uh, but it's, it's not the labor and the capital in that yeah. sense, that are producing the apple, which is mainstream economic thinking. It's the energy. Uh, we're both being – labor and capital are both earning far more than their so-called marginal product. Uh, with what we're doing is fighting over the distribution of the extra energy we generate. And we have a financial sector of wealth that's part of the whole distribution of all that. If you have a massively unequal society, as you guys do have, and Latin America is fairly similar yeah. on that front, uh, then there's no mass market. And therefore, the, the bargaining power of workers to get wage rises is stultified, but it also means your level of investment and demand is stultified. The rich do very well, thanks very much. Yeah. Um, but there's no, there's no impetus to develop and invest and innovate. Do you have any idea how we solve these problems? Do you have any thinking around some models that, that we can apply? Because certainly when I look at our government, um, and, and I'll come back to the central bank and the role of the central bank, but, uh, you know, our, our minister of finance who is completely and utterly clueless, who's a political appointment, mm. who actually has absolutely no idea what he's doing. I think it's his fifth ministerial position and every other one he's had has been a n- nothing but a disaster. Um, mm. And we're sitting in a, in, a, in a state capture. I don't know if you've been watching or heard of Bell Pottinger's demise that came out of South Africa. But we're sitting in a very, very interesting and, and terminal political situation. But the, um, you know, they, they want to try and reduce um, our deficit as opposed to increasing it. Do, do you have any idea or, or, or models that we can actually be looking at to try and well, solve do you, these do you, problems? Do you, are you running a trade deficit? Yes, we are. But they How large? To, um, I don't think it's – I think it's about 3.5% and they want to re- reduce it to about 3%. And I'm not sure on those numbers. Sorry, Steve. I didn't check yeah. those numbers. See, that, uh, that, that's, I mean, that, that's a realistic thing to worry about because yeah. you'll, you'll usually get governments obsessing about the government deficit. And, in fact, governments can create money even more easily right? than banks mm. can. So they don't actually face any – financial constraint, but your constraint really is that balance of trade deficit. If you have that sort of order of 3%, you can't really afford to stimulate the economy too much through government spending without that then leaking into into exports and into import demand. And, okay. you know, that is a real a real limitation. I think in some ways you've got to think in a mercantilist way. The, uh, the only successful countries that have been able to insulate themselves uh, very well are countries like Japan and Germany, which are running trade surpluses at the order of 5% of GDP. And they did that by, re- by breaking all the rules of the, of the WTO, by, by not uh, opening up to competition, by having domestic uh, – promoting mm. domestic industry and yeah. so on. Mm. And you have the capability to do that as well because you do have an unusual combination of a, of a high level of technological capability in the country uh, and massive 
physical resources as well. So you yes. have the capability to exploit and trade um, trade controls okay. to your own advantage. Yeah, we just we just need someone with a bit of cop to do it. Um, yeah. Stephen. You have neither, by the sounds of it. <laughs> no, 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 we, we really don't. It's 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 uh, yeah. It's a, a very interesting situation. Um, I, I'll be interested to see how we we resolve this. But uh, Steve, in terms of of um, you know, we talk about the exponential business, and you know, we look at uh, businesses like Uber that use technology to really scale. Um, from what you're saying, that's an advantage to us if we could find ways to scale our local industry to stimulate local demand around local products and services, we would be in a very, very good and healthy position in terms of the rest of the world. Yeah. And like one thing you can do uh, if you if you decide you're going to be an unemployment rate of 26% is enough to say you know, that's our major problem. We don't care if we annoy people about what we do with trade rules. Then you boost government spending to try to reduce unemployment, but you also put up tariffs you yeah. put up controls on it, and you, you you direct that money domestically rather than for internationally. If anybody complains, you say, "Well, we're stimulating our economy. What are you doing? 100%. If you're not stimulating, we've got the right to hang on to that stimulus for our own benefit rather than for yours." So uh, you 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 take on the trade authorities over the, on that front. Uh, not exactly easy, but uh, no. you guys have been international prize in the past. I'm sure you can cope with being it again for a, for a good reason rather than a bad one. Yeah, I know. I, I, I think it's a bit more complicated because our, our, our greatest export at the moment is by a family. I, I don't know if you've even read any of the news about our state capture. We've got a an, an Indian immigrant family who have effectively captured our president, and I think they've moved about 50 billion or probably 100 billion rand off into Dubai. So we, we're sitting mm. in a, a very, very interesting scenario. But just coming back to the exponential growth in 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 the case of the states uh, or even the UK or Australia the exponential model and this this increasing drive because what it what it actually brings is this exponential pace of change what what would the ex- impact be in 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 a, in a more stabilized well not a stabilized or, or a zombie economy uh, uh, would it be a positive thing in driving exponential businesses to try and stimulate that demand um I find the question a bit confusing i'm afraid to say okay. but all I'll, I'll try to interpret it. Um, you, you have a. You, you're talking about the growth in ecological limits, or are you talking about the stimulus from the. No, I'm I'm, I'm thinking more the use of technology. So if we, if we look at Uber, okay. you, you know they they've gone from it's a one. Velocity, right? Yeah, it's it's really about the velocity in terms of driving their mm-hmm. growth in terms of one, two, four, eight. So you, you know mm-hmm. th- there's a very strong drive, certainly in the VC world, you know the entrepreneurial world, to try and drive these entrepreneurial businesses. And you know you you're going to get one out of a hundred that actually succeed, some that that may do okay. But what it's doing is it's driving the pace of change at an exponential rate as well, because it's mm-hmm. forcing us to to move uh, the cycles shorter and shorter. So effectively, you know just just in terms of cycles, your boom and bust become closer and closer. Um, and, and I'm making an assumption on that as well. Yeah, the booms and busts, whether they come close or not, depends on the financial dynamics rather than the uh, innovative side of okay. things. But what what you've targeted is something that I um, want to – because obviously finance plays a role in enabling 
technological development to occur because if you get as you get if you get money as an entrepreneur you can actually buy stuff and turn your idea into something concrete which is yeah. what you want to do but of course existing banks have very little incentive to lend to entrepreneurs yes. uh, because there's no guarantee of getting their money back and of course you know if four out of five fail then the one that succeeds they only an interesting come on what they've lent and they're well and truly behind the eight ball so I'd, what i'd like to see is the development of what i call entrepreneurial equity loans and equity banks where the bank Banks behave a bit like a combination of a venture capitalist and a normal yeah. bank. Mm. And rather than giving you a loan, they, they give you money in return for an equity stake in your business. And then in that basis, uh, they might have you know four out of five might still fail, yeah. but the one that succeeds can do very well. It's not a magic bullet. I have a lot of venture capitalists telling me that most venture capitalists lose money. But if you see banking as a way of creating money out of double-entry bookkeeping, Absolutely. then I'd rather have that money being created for the sake of entrepreneurs, whether or not they succeed, because that will stimulate the economy and will get the good ideas exactly. as well. So, I mean, the only bank that I've come across that does something like that is the uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Are there any okay. other exam- examples yeah. of that? I mean, they, they do a phenomenal job at taking a small equity as well as backing VCs, and they use the same kind of algorithms to de-risk their lending profiles. Mm. Are, are we seeing other kind of institutions getting into this game? I mean, it could there's, spell a great There's one called – I know one company with, started by a couple of friends of mine who have become friends through economic issues, of course, called Equitile mm-hmm. over in London. That's right. A, a guy who used to run a private bank became horrified by the level of debt. He wrote an excellent book called Debt on Ata. So rather than you know, detonator, D-E-B-T, mm-hmm. detonator. Uh, uh, it's, uh, I think yes. I can't think of Andy's last name right now, but that's another book I recommend reading. He's saying we need to get more of an equity-based and less of a debt-based culture, and uh, so that's starting to happen. But in general, because we come from the debt-based culture of the past, uh, we've got a system which rewards property speculation and doesn't reward innovation. Hmm. Absolutely, True. absolutely. Your, your other uh, suggestion was really the the helicopter money. Uh, I mean, we, mm. we we look at quantitative easing. All it did was made the bankers richer, but it didn't trickle down. I mean, that's another fallacy mm. that comes through from mainstream that the, the mm. trickle down of economics. Um, do you, do you want to just give us a, an understanding of your 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 idea around the the helicopter money and and how it can solve that's a lot pretty of pretty much based out of London that same kind of thinking, right? No, no, the no. London but, financial systems. Mm-mm. Oh, okay. No, no. Am yeah. I out of my depth? Uh, yeah. Well, that, that, <laughs> it comes down to identifying what's the problem, and the problem is too much private debt. That's what's caused the financial – caused the bubble in the first place. It's what's caused the aftermath of the zombie economies. So you've got to reduce private debt. Now, how can you do that? Well, private debt's created by banks just doing double-entry bookkeeping. Here's a great, that's, that house looks great. Here's a million dollars to buy it. By the way, you owe us a million dollars. That drives up asset prices. Uh, that's what got us into the situation. So banks created by double-entry bookkeeping. They're, they're not housekeeping. Not they were housing. They're creating it out of nothing. The government can do exactly the same thing, mm. and that's how QE was financed. So in the case of UK, for example, they created $200 billion worth of QE per year, and there was not one cent raised in a QE tax because you didn't need to raise the taxes to do the spending. So the yeah. government has the same capability. They create money as they've done by QE, just by double-entry bookkeeping. Here's $200 billion in your, your account. We'll take those bonds. We value $200 billion, drive up our assets and drive up your, our liabilities at the same time. So you could use exactly the same capability and say the government is going to give money to the public on a per capita basis and anybody who's in debt has to pay their debt down, yeah. but anybody who's not in debt, there's a cash injection. And what I've elaborated that in my thinking 
uh, by talking to some people in the equity world as well. What you could also do to, to limit the extent to which you overstimulated the economy by giving a cash injection to people who are savers uh, would be to say, well, you've got to use X percent of that money to buy shares, mm. and those shares can be used by the corporate sector to cancel their cancel their private debt as well. So we could reset uh, the score system okay. effectively. That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and government can do this because they own a bank. Yeah, they've got their own. They're only company, only institution in society which owns its own bank. And then we talk about them as if they don't own their own bank. Yeah. Well, let's just be realistic. Say they do. You might not like it, but they bloody well do. Uh, what can they do with their capability? Here's a few possibilities. And one of them is to reduce the level of credit-based money and increase the amount of fiat-based money effectively because we've let far too much credit money be created in the last 30 or 40 years. Yeah, absolutely. And just to clarify that because uh, we've had some issues around this exact issue in South Africa around – uh, the role of of the South African Reserve Bank, and everyone's arguing that it's to in fact, you know, to, it, it's monetary policy, and it's to use interest rates as opposed to solve the employment problem. Um, and the problem is, it's come from from the quarter that is is really about the 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 corruption and and the looting in in South Africa that's going on at the moment. Mm. Uh, how how do we how do we manage this? Because we don't want to become another Zimbabwe, which is if effectively they've taken their bank and they've just run riot and and they've devalued mm. absolutely everything. I mean, yeah, I mean, they've also destroyed you know, productive resources there by trying to take the farm up, the land off the farmers, and yeah, and so it's horrific behaviour overall. So you do have that danger of of central banks, or governments getting out of control when they directly affect the central bank. I'm not a great fan of central bank independence in general, but I think you. Um, because it's been a case of handing over to people who call themselves experts that really aren't yeah, experts. No, no. Um, but I'd, but I'd like to see some ultimately expertise you know, the, the sort of approach to capitalism and economics that i have takes over <laughs> yeah no, um, absolutely. then say okay we we, we, we want to uh set the targets uh we might let the we might let the politicians have some role in those targets but generally speaking the targets have to be for positive levels of government spending government spending to exceed taxation yes. um you know but yeah, the, 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 when you got politicians, particularly like the big men, polit politics of Africa, yeah. then I can see how that leads to disaster. No, absolutely. Just just a question, and it might be a naive question: Do we need to be paying tax if government's got this ability? Because I mean, that's another that's, way to to, to the, put the money yeah, back into the pocket. Yeah, the, the, this is a problem because we, we, if we were talking back in the days of the uh, pre nineteen uh, hundreds government yeah. and the answer would be no they wouldn't need to because government is only the order of five or ten percent of gdp at most mm. and the change in government spending was was smaller again so you could actually finance most of it by direct money printing okay. now in governments of the order of 25 to 30 percent uh, if it financed its entire activities by seniorage you'd be increasing the money supply by 15 to 20 percent per annum which yes. would just be overwhelming. You'd have inflation. You'd have all the problems we're talking about. So taxation is there to reduce the amount of money that's being created to allow new money to be spent. Uh, but it would be possible, and I'm actually considering writing a little book on this, uh, what is the monetary system of Mars? <laughs> now, at some point, hmm. at some point, and there may be in the next decade, uh, Elon Musk hopes to have the beginning yeah. of the colony up on Mars, which will obviously be centrally planned and command economy when it starts. And everybody will be engineers and everybody has been dedicated and you'll work because, you know, you're, you're building a whole new culture, a whole new outpost for humanity on another planet. But at some point, if it's actually viable, it's going to need its own economy. Now, in that yeah. situation, you could create a form of money which degraded over time. So the government could create money which then decayed unless you spent it. And yeah. in that situation, the decay process could reduce the need to have uh, taxation. 
But yeah. in our case, we're stuck with money that doesn't decay, and therefore you do have this issue that the government has to tax to recirculate the money, and it does that in a very ineffective way and causes all sorts of social conflict. That's absolutely brilliant because it's actually quite interesting. Uh, um, we've got a project here in South Africa mm-hmm. called Project Ubu, mm-hmm. and they're trying mm-hmm. to create a mm-hmm. UBI framework on, on, the, on the blockchain. But a critical part of that UBI is the degradation of, of money. So it automatically, mm. so there's always a fixed amount. It's, it, it's never going to spiral out of control. So yeah, uh, it's, 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 it's quite an interesting project and it'll be very interesting to see where they actually get with it. I mean, what is the effect of having privatized tax on the blockchain? I mean, what, what would that be? Uh? Mm. I, I'm not sure. I mean, like we're pushing the boundaries where you kind of are pushing the gathering of tax into that transparent kind of platform. I guess it's the circulation of money still. Eh? It, it is, yeah. but I think you try yeah. to Yeah, I mean, you, you yeah. don't need tax to finance blockchain just like you don't need tax to yeah. finance government spending. Mm. You might need it to reduce the impact that it's had, but I think the decay process has exactly the same impact. Yeah, yeah. I think Brett's trying to solve our corruption problem. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Getting the transparency <laughs> around uh, tax. Yeah. No, <laughs> uh, uh, absolutely. Um, absolutely brilliant. Um, in terms of uh, – sorry, I t- – Read through through my question there. <laughs> in terms of what government should be spending money on, do you have any framework? Because I mean, in South Africa, we we've got a, a very historical structure around our state-owned enterprises. Here, we've got airways, we've got railways, we've got harbors. So very much the old um, industries that government needed to set up because no individual had the capacity to set them up. Mm. Um, I, I'm not too sure that they, they're working very well because they've become a route to corruption. Do, do you have any mm. um, a preference on, on where government or how government should be spending the money that well, they're creating? There's two, uh, two elements to that. One is that there's infrastructural things you don't want to be driven by profits. So, for example, yeah. you, don't, you, you, don't, you don't really care about the price of electricity as much as the fact that it actually arrives every, every second of every day. And so reliability matters far more than the return on the on the enterprise itself. That's the sort of thing where you want a government in control of rather than a, a private sector. And America learned that lesson through Enron, though, of course, America yes. never learns its lessons properly, does it? <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah, that, that's one element. Uh, of, 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 so that's one part of your choices. The other is you want the government to be able to waste money on things which the private sector can't afford to waste money on. That's where the space race came from in the very first instance. There's no way there could have been a private uh, venture to get to the moon back in the 1960s. Uh, that's why we have private ventures okay. to get to Mars in 2020s. So the government, in that sense, innovation comes out of people who can afford to lose money. And there are two groups who can afford to lose money in capitalism. One is the government. The other is uh, extremely wealthy individuals and, and venture capitalists. So have the government doing the blue sky stuff, may pay for the nuclear research, yeah. you know, try to bring out, you know, start developing um, fusion reactors, um, yeah, liquid molten, yeah, molten, molten thorium reactors, yeah. mm. that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, and then once it's profitable, then the private sector can take over. But in terms of infrastructural stuff where you want uh, everybody to have access to something, then that's where I want the government involved. And telecommunications is still of that nature. I'll give you a little analogy, a little story of mine, which I find quite funny. I had a member of the Communist Party of South Korea come out to work with me 20 years ago in Australia. A very, very, very classic old style in his personality. Um, but when he arrived, he, the apartment I got for him, he grabbed his laptop and started walking around the walls with a, 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 a Ethernet cable trying to plug it in. And I had to tell him, look, there is no Ethernet output. <laughs> he said, what? 
you don't have Ethernet in every house. Yeah. And now I had it in South Africa, South <laughs> South Korea, which is a highly capitalist nation, basically told its telecommunications companies, we don't care how you do it, you've yeah. got to make sure everybody's got an Ethernet ca- Ethernet cable in every house in the country. And and that was just a condition of being a telecommunications company in South Korea that you had to do that. Well, where do you think Samsung came from? Mm. Yeah. It wasn't created by that, but the fact that that's huge what what has become such a telecommunications powerhouse is the government could afford to waste money in making sure that every kid in every bedroom in South Korea had a C one hundred Ethernet connection, whereas down in Australia they're still using bloody dial up modems. <laughs> now um, that that's a case where that effectively inverted commas waste by the government generates private innovation at a later stage. Yeah. And those are that's so that's one of the two elements I'd like to the other of course being health. You don't want your access to health and education uh, being determined by how wealthy you are, yeah, and I'd agree. and uh, and that applies even to the wealthy. I mean, right. my favourite yeah. analogy there is uh, Kerry Packer, who one of the was Australia's real wealthiest man. He died uh, on a polo field, and he was lucky that the ambulance that came past had a defibrillator, and they brought him back to life again. And he then paid for a defibrillator in every ambulance in the country because he had no idea where he was going to be playing polo next. <laughs> now, uh, that is a case where, you know, it isn't just a case of wealth. You want some things you want to have available everywhere. That includes sanitation and so on. Those are the sort of things you want the government to pay for, not the private sector. Yeah, and and, and I think it, it requires a fundamental shift in how governments actually think about their role. I think it's as as, as hard as the mainstream economics uh Economists redefining their thinking. Just a question on 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 the mainstream, uh, Steve. Why are they so ignorant about this? Why are that? Because I mean, just just the idea of rational man. I mean, and I it's think not back, like a religion, right? Yeah, it's like a, a religion. Sacrificial cow. But but yeah. I re- I remember my lectures at university, and I remember being increasingly frustrated. My first lecture was about supply and demand and the balance, and I was just like, mm. folks, this can't work. The elastic's got to snap at some point. And they're like, no, no, it bounces <laughs> back. You 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 don't get it. Um, you know, you know, the idea of this perfect economy and this perfect world and perfect employment and perfect whatever else and the rational mm. man. And I certainly know, looking at my children, there's nothing rational about them. And my wife thinks the complete opposite <laughs> of me. I mean, let's not go there. You've got to go home. No, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, he's I mean, brave on radio, he's right? Brave, yeah. <laughs> um, but, 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 but the idea of rational man, why, why are economists so stuck in, in this false sense of, of academic ignorance? I, it's a very good question. And I think, I think, I, I believe this crap. When I was a high school student, because I yeah. went back and when I did high school at university at Australia in the 1960s, my textbook was more advanced than the textbooks we now use for second and third year at university here. Uh, and I swallowed all this stuff, and a, a large part of it, we have, we are a, a belief-driven species. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that lions and 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 and, and, and wildebeest share belief systems. No. We certainly do, no. and Sapiens. that belief system, the fact to share the beliefs, means we actually act on those beliefs, and that's partly where we became the dominant species on the planet. That's what trips us up because we have this belief that we can actually design a perfect society, mm. and the neoclassical vision of a perfect world, equilibrium, yada yada yada, is a perfect yeah. world, and they become zealots committed to that vision. And that's the, that vision traps them when they're teenagers. You know, young boys with too much testosterone and, and not enough outlet for it, and that's that classic that defines economists, uh, end up believing in the stuff and trying to proselytize the world to believe and think the way they do. And therefore, the belief system dominates rather than any sensible, genuinely rational feedback about what actually happens when you try these ideas in practice. 
Yeah, um, this herd mentality, the, tri- the tribe mentality. Uh, Steve, mm. in terms of the coming crisis, what is your timeline on this? And I know it's a very, very difficult That's thing to say. We need to throw this forward a little yeah. bit, right? <laughs> in the next one to three years, and the, okay. I identified about the, 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 the characteristics that I need to see to say I think economy is going to have a crisis are twofold. First of all, the level of private debt, mm. it has to be substantial compared to GDP something about 1.5 times GDP. And secondly, it has to be growing fairly rapidly. So a growth rate where credit's growing every year by of the order of 10% of GDP or more. Now, the countries that qualified on that front include, at the very top, of course, China. And China's gone from a debt level at 2009 of about 110% of GDP to 200, 200, 210% uh, yeah. a mere you know, eight years later. That's a huge increase in credit. Yeah. And that's made them a, they, when the rate when the rate of growth of credit slows down, they'll have a slump caused by that alone. The next largest country is is, is South Korea, and South Korea on that front. South Korea, as we're looking at for here, I'm looking at my list as I talk. Ah, China's Korea has gone from 160 percent of GDP at the time of the financial crisis mm. to 190 percent now. Uh, worse still, the countries like Australia and Canada. Australia has gone from. Uh, in 2012, 180% to, to 210%. Now, Canada, which I think is probably the most likely one to have a crunch very soon, Canada's gone from, at the time of the financial crisis, 170% of GDP to 220%. Oh. That's a you know massive increase. They're dependent upon that maintained credit growth continuing indefinitely. It won't continue indefinitely, and when it does, they'll have a slump. Um, but that really implies the next one to three years. Okay, and and... In in terms of of how to manage uh, your, yourself around this, any any suggestions? Uh, well, the only suggestion that makes sense is the one that causes the problem in the first place. This is where stability is destabilizing, of course. Yeah. Uh, getting out of debt. If you can liquidate your assets uh, and have no debt, you're in a very comfortable situation in a downturn. But because you liquidate your assets and have no debt, you're cancelling the money. Uh, yes. that you use to pay that debt down and therefore you reduce the amount of demand money in the economy and reduce demand so your personal decision uh, has an impact on the on the aggregate nature okay. of the economy okay i mean all those countries you listed have very low interest rates right so they, but they've, yeah they've been forced into it yeah they've been forced yeah. into it right yeah yeah fascinating so all of a sudden it's really cheap to get debt yeah yeah which of so, course encourages you to continue moving into the into the point where you can afford to take on no more debt because it'll, the rates will never fall below two percent, yeah. you know, in terms of the rates you and I face. Yeah. Um, so what you do is, if you if you continue driving it down, you start getting to the point where the servicing costs on that debt become astronomical. Not because the rates are very high, but because the amount of debt you owe is very high. And then you're stuck in a corner. Once the debt can't continue growing, then you have a crisis. Yeah. Sure. And, and and Steve, your your thought process around blockchain and its impact, and and, and in comparison to fiat currency, because that's really What's driving this mm. is fiat currency. I'm, I'm a bit of a, a – I'm some of the foundation ideas behind things like Bitcoin in particular mm. were based on myths. So the fact that you know 21 million Bitcoin was based on the idea that there's you know a fixed amount of gold, therefore we'll have a fixed amount of Bitcoin. Yeah. Mm. But somebody else can invent a new form of, bit, of of digital money. You can't invent a new form of gold. So it's a false analogy. That's a good point. Uh, and, and cryptocurrencies, right? There are thousands yeah. of them. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a dozen now. And, and also, uh, the, because you're using the no centralized exchange system, the time delays in, in validating a transaction that actually occurred with a no trust, uh, framework means it takes up to 10 minutes to validate mm-hmm. a transaction. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. Now, but that's not valid. But it's actually putting it into the blockchain rather than validating. Yes. Uh, where it's milliseconds to do the validation. If we combined blockchain with centralized centralized exchange, then you could have digital money uh, with the with the speed and low cost of of, of fiat based money. And I see it playing a role, but at the moment it's too volatile. You, you need to have a more stable price of the actual financial asset itself to make it feasible to imagine it could take over as a form of money. Mm. And ultimately, money is simple. Um, if you're going to have 30 and 40 and 50 different currencies, you've got to decide what, not only how, what, to, what to buy, but how, what to buy with. Um, that gets too complicated for people. That's why everybody only buys a Big Mac when they go to Ham, the, the Mac, the Mac, to the, uh, McDonald's. The Optimum's just too overwhelming. You'll take the same thing you had last time round. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's partly why I don't think, um, we're going to get a world of multiple competing currencies. You'll come down to one currency ultimately, but the blockchain technology could play a major role in that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Steve, really a, a, a kind of a wrap up question from, from my side. What mm. happens when we actually hit the zombie state? You know, I mean, I am just picturing zombies everywhere, personally. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a very Jeez. real scenario. That I mean, what is what 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 do you see happening? Because I mean, it's a hard picture to to mm. to kind of conceptualize. Well, I see, I see the, the the political instability we've seen becoming even more common. So the fact that Donald Trump got elected is yeah. completely a factor here. Equally, the fact that Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, is is uh, on a hiding to nothing to win the next election in the UK. Uh, the Le Pen almost won in France. Uh, all this sort of stuff is a p- public reaction to the fact that what was the ultimate pact that made capitalism successful, everybody benefits, you know, some more than others, but you're all going to benefit. When the working class, which is the majority, starts to get screwed, uh, then you get more and more political instability. So in the aftermath of this, particularly with things like QE making the wealthy mm. even wealthier, uh, there'll be more political instability, more so-called populism, not because it's unthinking, but because the mainstream itself was unthinking. So I, I see a lot of political instability and really a, a social breakdown coming out of that. The only way out, I think, is going to be having to finally make a, a, sen- a sensible response to the global, to the um, ecological crisis we're mm. obviously yes. approaching. Yes. And in that situation, we might finally do like we did during the Second World War, uh, which is fight an existential crisis with everything at our disposal and thereby doing it, eliminate the problem that caused the existential crisis in the first place. Get rid of the debt. Yeah, and, and hope like hell we've learned the lesson mm. properly this time. Pardon, sorry? And, and hope like hell we've learned the lesson properly this time when we go through it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Professor Steve Keen, uh, uh, thank you. This has been absolute an absolute yeah, privilege to, to spend the hour chatting to you. I, I appreciate your time and, and, and thank you so much for sharing your, your, your wisdom with us. Thank you. A great conversation. And for popping the link on, I'll back it up on my Twitter uh, followers as well. Fantastic. I'll, I'll share the notes and I'll, I'll also share out your Patreon account and, and uh, your, your, your links to, to the books, etc. on our site here. And very quickly for our audience, please remember it's at Futurology Show. If you go to iTunes or any of the podcasting apps, please give us five stars. And I think we've had an absolutely fantastic show. I must admit... This is the brightest I've ever heard Mike sound like. <laughs> I did my homework. He gets home though. He's got a problem with his wife already. Yes. Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, it's a normal case though, Steve. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks, Steve. Okay, bye. Cheers. Thank you. This is cliffcentral.com.